Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. All right, everybody, meet me in John chapter 8. John is one of the four stories that we have about Jesus in the New Testament. So about 80% of the way through your physical Bible, you'll find John. We're in John chapter 8, just a couple of verses. But before we get to that, I want to say and make an important announcement and invitation because today is a big day in the life of our church. So in the in-person gathering in the theater today, we are introducing to uh, our congregation, our, our church community, the four people who have spent the last six to eight months going through elder training and discernment. And I just want to name those four people and then tell you what the process is as we move forward with them as elder candidates. So Ian Chafin, Aki Chafin, Andrea Canonias, and Janine Carlson are the four folks who went through this fairly significant time, right? Six to eight months, depending on when they started, of uh, reading, studying, reflecting, training, and most importantly, discerning God's call on their life if they are ready to take this step of eldership. Ian and Aki have chosen not to take that step at this time, although they are fully qualified and more than, than ready to go. Um, now is not a great time for them as their family is expanding, but Janine and Andrea have said yes to this challenge, to this adventure of eldering and leading our church, joining our current team, and we are really excited and grateful for their engagement with the process and then also for their commitment to help lead our church in this way. You'll notice Janine and Andrea are both women. They will be the first two women elders in the history of Discovery, and that is a very cool thing that we are celebrating as a church. Now, the way that this works and has historically worked at Discovery, and we envision it to continue working this way as we move forward, but the way that this works is we do what we're doing right now and present them as candidates, and then before we confirm them, we actually ask and invite your feedback. So if you have any questions, if you have uh, affirmations, oh yeah, of course, Janine, Andrea, they're going to make great elders. If you have any concerns, we want to hear that from you and we welcome that feedback over the next couple of weeks. Our next elder meeting is October 19th, so technically you would have until October 19th to get that in to us. Um, the email should be there at the bottom of your screen, but I'll just say it. Elders at discoverydavis.org is where you would want to send questions, affirmations, and concerns should you have any. All right, I just want to say that I'm really, really proud. I continue to be so proud and grateful to be a part of this church for the adventure that we are on together, for your uh, willingness to walk with us through the kind of bigger process of discernment about what role women can play in leadership at our church, and then also this kind of process within the process of preparing, developing, and discerning who the next leadership, eldership team uh, will and should be here for the next season in our church. All right, so thank you so much for that, guys. Now, John chapter 8, 
We're looking at just two verses, although we'll be in lots of other parts of Scripture as we make our way through this conversation today. We return to the practices conversation. John 8, 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus says this, If you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for, well, really for Ian, for Aki, for Janine, for Andrea, for the step of faith that they took early this year to begin thinking, dreaming, praying, discerning your call on their life as leaders in our church. Whether they have a title or not, the four of them are leaders, servants, people who have sacrificed greatly for your kingdom, for discovery specifically, God. And we are grateful that you have brought them uh, to be a part of our church community over, in some cases, many, many years. And for the ways that they have stewarded the mission that you have given us to help people discover the good news of Jesus. Uh, God, we're grateful for Janine and Andrea, for them taking this risk, this next step, saying yes to eldership. Pray for Ian and Aki as they move into their next season of life. Um, starting their family. God, what a, what a cool story that is as well. Uh, God, we pray that this next leadership team, which is really a continuation of our current leadership team, the next elders would um, come together quickly, would become a cohesive, bonded team, and would again lead the way in loving and sacrificing and serving the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8, 31 and 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The great Stephen Colbert said many years ago now, uh, he coined this term, truthiness. <laughs> truthiness. Truthiness is now actually a real word. You can look it up in a dictionary. The definition of the word is this, the quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if not necessarily true. So something that kind of seems maybe sounds like it might be true, but it's not actually true. Now, Colbert used this, and, and he coined this term, I want to say 15, 16 years ago, but he used it as a way to make fun of politicians for being a bit loose with the facts. Truly nothing new under the sun, right? And it was prophetic, because we now live in a moment, and we struggle to name this moment, but we use things like, Postmodern, post-truth, post-facts. This world where we can't even decide on what is real. I want to show you for a moment just how unnew this actually is. If you rewind the story, not just of the Bible, but of our world, you rewind the story back to Genesis chapter 3. This is the scene where Satan, the accuser, takes on the form of a snake, enters the garden, disrupts God's shalom with this very simple, but, but, oh man, what a question. Did God really say? Did God really say? This same question that we've been falling for, for all of human history. It's the question that's at the root of so much of our, our moment, right? Conspiracy theories, fake news, disinformation, 
campaigns, did they really say? Is that what you really saw? Is anything really real or true or what it appears to be? In our moment, these words from Jesus in John chapter 8 are so freeing, so refreshing. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Don't you want that? I want that. Now, right before Jesus says this, he, he says, if you hold to my teaching, right? If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. That word hold is the same Greek word that Jesus uses later in John when he tells his disciples to remain or abide in him. Remember when he talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever uh, remains in me, remains in my love. John 15, remain, abide, hold, same word. When we remain, abide, when we hold to Jesus' teachings, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. So one of our callings always, but especially now, as Jesus followers, is to wage a resistance, a protest, a war against lies, against untruth. And that resistance begins, Jesus says, with abiding, with holding on to his teachings, with everything we've got. This is why the practices are so foundational for our community. The practices, sometimes called spiritual disciplines, are these life-giving, life-sustaining actions, rhythms, routines even, that ground us in truth and that will set us free. They will set us free. Like Jesus says in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on the rock. You don't have to worry because you have built your life on the rock. Hold to these teachings. Put them into practice. The good news of Jesus is lived. It is experienced. It is not just something that we learn about or think about. That's part of it, but we hold to it. We put it into practice so that we can be free. Now, Today, we turn specifically, return really, to the practice of confession. Confession. Now, on the surface of things, this might be the least exciting of all the practices. Like confession, you know, there's prayer, that sounds great. Reading the Bible is in alignment with a lot of other things that we sort of hold uh, uh, to be valuable within the church. Maybe something like fasting is sort of new and different. We get excited about that. But confession, it's like, oh, really? Maybe you have uh, images of confessional booths or being forced to share your dark past with someone that you didn't want to. We don't think of confession as this resistance against lies. But it is. It is. It's one of the key practices, one of the key tools that we have to wage this war against untruth. Now, confession, one of the reasons maybe it doesn't feel exciting to us is that it is tied up with some words that over time have become very loaded. Words, in fact, that may have been used uh, against us, may have um, been used in unhelpful, harmful, even abusive ways. Words like sin and repentance 
and confession. These are weighty words, but they are also good, rich words that we can reclaim. So I want to talk about these words here for just a few moments. I'm talking about sin and repentance and confession. But let's start with sin because that's the most fun word. <laughs> sin. Now, we believe, and I, I, my kids have learned this part of uh, what's called the catechism. We believe that God is the creator of everyone and everything. And in his creating, so we, we went all the way back to Genesis 3, but now we're going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. In his creating, God has this vision, this dream for the functioning and flourishing of his creations. <clears throat> the writers of the Old Testament call this vision shalom. The writers of the New Testament call it the kingdom of God. Either way, it is about how God intended the world to work, the way that he wanted things to be everything in its right and proper place, right relationship between God and human beings, between humans, but with our own selves and with the rest of creation. But then human beings, we all rebel against that functioning and flourishing. This is the basic definition of sin, anti-shalom. So back to Genesis 3, when Eve and Adam fall for the serpent's question, they are not just disobeying a rule. They are breaking relationship with God, rejecting the way that he set the world up to work, and the fallout is massive. Massive. Death, separation, broken relationships, injustice, all the crazy things that we see going on in our world right now, part of the fallout of that decision to go against the way that God intended the world to work. So, you have shalom, peace, wholeness, harmony, everything in its right and proper place, working the way that God intended it to work. And then you have anything that disrupts, that disorders, that upends that shalom. Anything that violates or tears apart those right relationships. Anything that is anti-shalom, anti-kingdom of God is what we are talking about when we talk about sin. Adele Calhoun, who's written a lot on the practices and spiritual disciplines, has a great quote here about sin. She says, the truth is, we all sin. It's a good confession right there. We all sin. Sin is anything that breaks relationships. Jesus is totally realistic about broken relationships. He experienced them. He was put to death by them. Yet, Jesus taught that the damage done through sin was not the last word on life. This is the good news. This is the gospel, right? Sin could be confessed. Sin could be forgiven. And sinful people, here it comes that phrase again, could be set free. Mm, are you with me? So we all sin. We all violate right relationships. But then the question is, is there a way back to shalom? How do we experience this freedom that Jesus offers? The resounding answer to that first question is yes. There is a way back to shalom. Some traditions say to get there, you need to do more good things than bad things, kind of bring some balance, right? Or, or overwhelm the bad things that you've done. Other traditions say things like, well, you need more education, you need enlightenment, you need to learn the, the right stuff. Some will say that you need a sacrifice, right? Someone has to pay for the wrong that was done. We see this in the Old Testament, the people of God killing 
animals, part of the sacrificial system. But Jesus, as he introduces himself, Mark chapter 1, for example, says the kingdom of God is here. It is here. Shalom, heaven, the kingdom, here and now. Jesus says, I am the solution. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, good news. The best possible news. There's this news, this truth that someone has intervened for us so that we can freely relate to God, so that we don't have to hide or cover up or pretend or just try a little bit harder. We can be honest, truthful, and in that honesty, we can find freedom. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This brings us, we talked about sin, this brings us to that word repentance, which really all repentance means is to turn, to turn into a different direction. If the first step of repentance is confession, naming the truth that, hey, where I'm at right now, it's not a great place. Don't want to be here anymore. Then the next step is turning, repenting, and going in a new direction. So sin, violating shalom, confession, naming the violation, repentance, turning and heading back to Jesus in whom we can have total confidence because his grace frees us to be bold and to approach that throne because he's made the way for us. Now, I want to round out our definition of confession. Confession is naming the violation, but there is more to this word. Confession in a literal sense means to acknowledge with. Maybe you've, you've heard the phrase, uh, a confession of faith. They made a confession of faith. It's just a statement of what we believe to be true. And I love that it says with, right? It's not just something that I think or something that I say. It's you and I are agreeing on this is what is true and real. Confession, simply put, is telling the truth. So here's our working definition. Confession is telling the truth about myself to God with those around me and to myself. Let me just walk through those three things here real fast and then we'll come in for a close. So we begin with God. Healthy confession always involves going to God and telling the truth. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, tremendous good news. God forgives and makes a way to bring us back into right relationship. But confession is not just a me and God thing, right? So we do need to tell the truth to God, but we also need to tell the truth 
to each other. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There's something about sitting with another person, a real human being, and saying, this is my struggle. This is my sin. This is where I violated God's shalom, the way he intended the world to work, and I need help. I cannot do this by myself. We need loving, safe, real people to share our stuff with because in that sharing is the path to healing, the path to freedom. And I think it's really interesting that James uses the word righteous, right? The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Righteousness, someone who fights for right relationship, that's who you want to confess to. And then... Finally, we got to confess the truth to ourselves. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's interesting when you have someone in your life who kind of knows what's going on with you before you actually do. Amy often knows what's up with me even before I figure it out. But we have to be able to admit this to ourselves, right? This first step of healing, of repentance, of confession, is coming to the place where we can say to ourselves, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm drinking too much. I've got anger issues. This job is killing my soul. I've been neglecting my spouse. I'm failing out of school. I need to get rid of this credit card. Whatever it is, admitting to ourselves we don't want to live this way anymore. The hardest person to be honest with can sometimes be us. Which is why this prayer from Psalm 139 is so important. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Help me, God, to tell the truth to myself, to others, and ultimately to you. It's the heart of confession. Now, I fully believe that as we confess the truth about us to God, to our community and to ourselves, we will find freedom. Jesus says it, scripture speaks to it. I've certainly experienced it in my own life. So what do we do? How do we put this into practice? Well, I originally was gonna end the talk this way. Okay, I wanted to encourage you to go get involved in a mid-sized community. And I still wanna do that. I still wanna encourage you to get involved in a mid-sized community because that is Again, the primary place where we build these kinds of relationships, where we can be honest about who we are, where we can name our stuff, we can tell the truth about ourselves, where there will be righteous people who will walk with us through that, who will pray for us and will help us move towards healing. So if you're not involved in a mid-sized community, again, now, what a great time to be involved in one of those. But here's the other thing that I want to say to you this morning. And this is my confession. This past 18 months of this coronavirus has been hard, okay? I've taken, um, I've taken some hits. And my confession is that it's made me afraid. It's made me afraid. I, I think that my view of God has shrunk in a way that is not great. As I said earlier, I, I got off a, a plane just a little while ago after spending a week with some leaders 
uh, from all around the country. We came together to dream about some things, about the future of the church, about the future of campus ministry. And I realized, uh, among other things, that this whole experience of the last 18 months, COVID, political divisions, you know, debates about masks, the reality of facing racial injustice in our country, debates about vaccines, church scandals, the whole thing, it just, it, it's made me scared. And I've been operating much more from a place of fear than I would like to admit. In the Jesus stories, there's a scene where Jesus, where Jesus is walking on the water. He's actually out on the lake, and he's about to walk past the disciples' boat. <clears throat> and Peter is like, that looks cool. And so he asks if he can come out. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks on the water out to Jesus, which is like, how cool is that to be walking on this lake? But then Peter looks at the waves and the winds, and he gets scared, and he begins to sink. And Jesus picks him up and says, Peter, where was your faith? And I think way too often, we, meaning pastors, church leaders, have read that story as like, wow, Peter blew it, you know? Where was his, where was his faith? He, he chickened out. But I don't believe that Jesus, as he reaches down and picks Peter up and, and saves him from the wind and the waves, I do not believe that Jesus is scolding Peter. I don't think he's shaming Peter at all. I think this was compassion. Peter, I got you. Peter, don't you know how much more you could do? How far you can go? I'm with you. I'm with you. So I confess, Discovery family, the wind and the waves have gotten to me. And this last week, I really felt Jesus saying, Hey, Steve, you have little faith. Come on. Come on. Think how far you can go. Think how far you can go. So I confess to being more afraid than I would like to admit, but I also confess that I have dreams. When I think about what God is up to here in Davis, what God is up to at Discovery, what could be here, man, I get goosebumps. I do. Now, I want more than anything for our Discovery family to be a family of dreamers, to join God's dream for His creation, restoration of shalom. What are your dreams, Discovery? What makes you mad? What makes your heart race just a little bit faster? I have dreams. I, I want to see people get healed. I want to see people freed. I want to see people discover that Jesus really is good news. That all that junk they may have experienced before wasn't Jesus. Wasn't Jesus. The good news is so much better than that. I have dreams about opening a restaurant, a music venue, physical spaces for relationships to form right here in our community. I have dreams for our mid-sized communities. 
that they grow, that they multiply beyond the two that we have to at least six, but even more as more and more people find significant relationships. I have dreams for a new expression of campus ministry at UC Davis. I have dreams that we give our lives away like Jesus did, that we would be on the city's speed dial. Hey, we need something called discovery. I have dreams about the ways that we serve, whether that's refugees or students or the homeless in our community, whether that's schools, whoever it might be, that we would serve and give ourselves away like Jesus did. I dream for us to plant churches, new kinds of churches, new expressions of the kingdom of God. Here's where I'm going with all of this. Dreams die alone, but they grow and flourish in community. They move from dream to reality by speaking them, by confessing, by acknowledging with, these are our dreams, and then coming around each other and going, wow, that's a great dream. Guess what? We have a great God. That's a big dream. Hey, we have a big God. Let's go for a walk out on that water. My confession, I got scared. I forgot how big our God is. I forgot that God's dream is for us to dream with Him and to join Him in His dream for His creation, restoration, redemption, shalom, freedom, life. What is your dream? What is your dream? What's your confession of faith? And let's share them. Let's acknowledge them together, name them together, encourage each other towards those dreams, and then let's watch what God does. Sit back and watch what God does with those dreams. So, my invitation to you, Discovery family, let's dream. Let's dream. Let's tell each other. Let's confess to one another. This is what I love to see happen. And then let's pray and let's watch God do some amazing stuff. Heavenly Father, I sense that I'm probably not the only one who over the last 18 months feels a little beat down, a little discouraged, whose imagination has shrunk who's lost sight of the, the scope, the vastness of who you are. The, the overwhelming bigness of your grace and love for us. And it is big and wide and vast and deep and all these words that we use to try to describe it, but it also is specific in its demonstration in Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection for us, his uh, bending down and picking Peter up out of that water is what he does for all of us. Father, may we be once again in awe of how big and amazing you are. Would we join you in dreaming big dreams? Would you surprise us? Would you expand our imaginations, our hearts? Would you help us to get a glimpse, a taste of the bigness of your kingdom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as we get ready for communion, I invite you to get whatever elements you need together. I want you to sit with a couple of things. Going back to First uh, John, right? We, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. If there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. What do you need to confess? Sometimes that's I don't, I'm not in a good place. I've blown it. I've messed it up. And other times that's, I think this is what God is up to. Or what if this happened? What if we tried that? And in either case, having people around you to speak truth back into your life. To pray for you. To pray for healing and freedom. To pray with you in those dreams. So, do you need to confess something? Begin now. When you're ready, take those elements, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, these tangible reminders of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf so that we can experience shalom and so that we can participate in God's dream of restoring shalom to His creation. Whenever you're ready, take communion with us.